while it may be cold outside, things are getting toasty warm at Global Voice Broadcasting. Heat up your winter nights with the hottest topics, the hottest celebrities, and today's best music. It's why Global Voice Broadcasting is becoming your 24-7 home for the music and talk you want right now. Discover your favorite shows and music anytime at globalvoicebroadcasting.com. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin. A spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. In a good karma life, the spontaneous joy you feel from having a body that's functioning as well as it can joins with the deep satisfaction of knowing that even though you can't make everything perfect, you're making a heck of a lot of things better. Victoria Moran, The Good Karma Diet. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, where we love to explore empowerment in and outside of the bedroom. Y'all may recall our previous episodes on kind living and empowerment and the sexy vegetarian, where we talked about super sexy perks of a plant-based lifestyle, from improved blood flow where it counts and less depressive symptoms to living with more compassion. Uh, Later in the show today, Dr. Megan Fleming is going to share thoughts for a listener whose partner is struggling with erectile dysfunction. But first, we are going to take the compassion conversation further with the wonderful Victoria Moran. Victoria has been a Main Street vegan, which is also the name of her company and podcast, for 31 years. She's an obesity survivor, an inspirational speaker, a certified holistic health counselor, and the best-selling author of 12 books, including Creating a Charmed Life, which is published in 30 languages worldwide, and her latest book, which I'm reading and loving now, The Good Karma Diet, Eat Gently, Feel Amazing, Age in Slow Motion. She's won all sorts of worthy awards, appeared on The Oprah Winfrey Show twice, and her articles have appeared in Yoga Journal, Women's Day, Martha Stewart's Whole Living, Vegetarian Times, and more. And we are so fortunate to have her joining us today. Welcome, Victoria. How are you? Oh, I'm wonderful, and it's so much fun to be talking to you. I think, you know, we have the the celebrities up on the big screen, and then we have our, our personal celebrities and our online celebrities, and you're certainly one of those to me, so it's really a pleasure to talk with you. I'm so honored to hear that, because you're definitely one to me. I've been following your work for some time, and I just, I love everything that you radiate. You radiate uh, vibrancy and empowerment in so many ways, and it's so inspiring because I know that your path hasn't always been an easy one, which so many people can relate to. Could you share how you felt about your body and self early on before you evolved in these ways? Oh, yeah, really awful. I didn't like having a body and I didn't relate to having a body. I've always been interested in in spiritual things and and the beyond. One of my favorite phrases is actually a Joel Goldsmith book title, which is a parenthesis in eternity. And that really is how I see life. But early on, I didn't have a lot of respect for the parenthesis. (laughs) You know, get on with the cosmic stuff. And so I had this body that did work very well because I was fat from the time I was a little 
child. And my dad was a diet doctor, and my mother worked in these places that they called reducing salons that had all these machines that would jiggle people about with the idea that great chunks of themselves would float off into the stratosphere. Didn't happen for me. So the combination of just being uncomfortable on earth, I think, as a little kid, and being fat made it very, very hard. And getting into adolescence, of course, multiplied a lot of that. And did you stay that way for some time? I know that it's a journey for all of us. Did you find your healthy path quickly, or was there a turning point? No, I would say that that it was gradual. I I happened to come of age in in the 1960s, um, and, you know, it was, we discovered sex. We didn't think anybody had had that before. (laughs) And, And so... There was that, you know, out into the the world and, and anything goes and, and, you know, you've got the pill. But then on the other hand, I was already getting into health and everything. And I went to a lecture by Dick Gregory where he was saying, you know, don't take the pill. It will kill you. And so I think I created more obstacles for myself than a lot of my peers were having at, at that time. So I, I just kept. Searching. And I think one of the biggest things for me that was oh, such a blessing, and if there was a turning point, this was it, that was discovering yoga. Because in my life, there had always been the dichotomy of the physical and the spiritual. And the spiritual was good, and the physical you just had to deal with. And then all of a sudden, there was yoga that said, this is a spiritual path but you have to bring your body. You're not just allowed to bring your body. You are required to bring your body. And I think that was the first time I was 17 when I started reading about yoga, 18 when I moved to London and started actually studying yoga with an amazing woman. I have to tell you, I thought she'd passed away because I'd never been able to find her in all these years. And through the wonder of the Internet, when I was in London last fall, I found her. She's 92 years old and still teaches yoga. So... um, so that was a, a big deal. And then I think uh, the other thing was getting into recovery for my food addiction. And and when that was no longer happening on a daily basis in my life, when I wasn't able to bury feelings in food, then I started to live a little more from the neck down. Mm, that's incredible. And you said in your book that food was your drug. What did you mean by that? Well, it was what I used to deal with life. And I loved in the intro to your show, you know, it said that it, it's where good girls come to find their sexual information. Mm-hmm. And I think so many of us, certainly of my generation, but other generations too, had this incredible message of, you know, the good girl, bad girl thing. I even went to Catholic school for a while and there it was very deeply ingrained. And so what does a good girl do when she can't cope with life? I mean, you're certainly not going to drink or take drugs or go sleep with men. Oh, heavens. So <laughs> the food wow. is readily available. And and that was what I used. And what I saw at, over time was how much it had hidden life from me and kept me from life. And when I did get recovery, for which I am incredibly grateful, 
I had to go back a little bit and do some backtracking and learn some of that maturing and appreciation of, of the body and the self that happens for, I think, in, in a healthy life, a girl in adolescence. And I was doing it in my late 20s and early 30s. Wow, that's very impressive. And I think it's interesting that so many people struggle with food addiction that you described and binge eating is the most common form of disordered eating that there's so much shame around. How are you able to really stop that cycle? I'm sure the awareness helped, but because it is so addictive, were there, were there actual steps that you had to take to, to really break that? Yeah. For, for me, there were 12 of them. <laughs> so I took the very traditional, I guess one would say, route for approaching addiction. And, and, and that is a 12 step program for, for people with, um, food difficulties. So I, I just believe that, that something like Overeaters Anonymous is, is miraculous when one is willing to just say, okay, you know what? I may not be the smartest person on the planet or I wouldn't be eating myself to death. And if there's even a possibility that I'm not the smartest person on the planet, maybe these people can teach me something. And again, it took me a while to get it because I had a lot of ego. I also confused my eating disorder with knowledge of nutrition and that kind of thing. So because I had grown up around a physician and I knew a lot of facts about nutrition, I started writing really young. I started writing first for teen magazines in my early teens. And then as I became more interested in vegetarianism and that sort of thing from an ethical point of view, I started writing for health food store magazines and I interviewed lots of people who were very well known in, in the nutrition field and the fitness field. And somehow I thought if I got close enough to them, maybe some of it would rub off. So when things finally got so bad that I knew I had to go for some sort of inner recovery, I still had to get over this idea that I was this big expert. You know, I know a lot about food. The only thing I didn't know about food was how to stop eating it. <laughs> so uh, for me, yeah, it was very traditional 12-step recovery that has given my life so much, oh my gosh, so much beyond just not compulsively overeating a day at a time for 32 years now. So much more than, than just having a, a slender, strong body for all these years and decades. And those are great. Those are fantastic. But it also gave me ways to deal with relationships and sexuality and being a mom and all these other things that I needed some education on and some transformation. And I got both. I love that you share so much of your story and journey because it can help so many people. And I especially love anyone who knows me uh, would tell you that to have a diet book, a diet related book on, on my show, I'm very particular because of the same reasons you just mentioned. There's, there's a, an obsession with the wrong things. And I love that your work focuses on goodness and living with joy and compassion and nourishing yourself, not only physically, but emotionally. And I love the whole term, good karma diet. We don't <laughs> think of karma as something that's dietary. Could you tell us what the good karma diet is all about? You know, it's the idea that when you put good out into the world, and I firmly believe this, and so many people say, oh, that's ridiculous, and why do so many mean people have a lot of money or whatever? 
whatever. But I think it's it's much bigger than that. And I think we can all see in our lives that the more we put into life, the more we do for others, the more we honor and respect and embrace what's going on, the more richness and, and beautiful textures and colors our own life gives back to us. So to me, a good karma diet is is a two-part practice, a two-part process. One is it's going to honor my body. I mean, I could say, well, I, I had a hard day. I'm going to honor myself by eating a whole box of, of Oreos. Eh, you know, not sure that's quite honor. And then the other side of, of a good karma diet is that what I eat affects my body, but what I choose to eat, where I spend my money affects others as well as me. So for me, the idea of evolving into a sort of, of diet that has no exploitation or, or no killing of, of animals is, is a really integral part of this good karma process. And so when you put those two things together, certainly in my experience, wonderful things happen. First, I discovered vegetables. <laughs> I can tell the story. When I was nine years old, I was in my dad's office and I got out one of his old nutrition books from, from medical school and I found this chart, which is very much like the Andy chart that Dr. Joel Furman has done for Whole Foods Markets that has foods by nutrient density. But this was in an old medical school textbook from like 1930. And I just saw all these strange foods. It's like, what on earth is a collard green? What What is kale and, and, and mustard greens? That has to be a misprint because everybody knows mustard is yellow. And it, I was a, a mature adult before I ever really ate dark leafy greens, which today I think are just these miraculous substances in, in so many ways. So it's this lovely combination of kindness to oneself and kindness to others. I imagine some people are listening and thinking, you know, they get they're supposed to eat vegetables and they see the value in eating plant-based foods. But I think they scare people for a lot of reasons, you know, if they think they're not going to taste good or they're not sure how to prepare them. And in your book, I know you talk a lot about the gradual steps you can take. There's also really lovely, simple recipes, which made me so happy because sometimes when you're making a, a dietary shift or trying to explore cooking in a, in a new way, it can be really intimidating when there's 70 things on the, on the list. What are some of the, the gradual steps that people can take if say they're eating more of a quote, Western style diet that's that's not really rich in these plant foods. Yeah, well, the first thing I think is just be educated, because we only do things when we think there's a good reason to do it. And if somebody on the radio says, "Yeah, well, eat more plants," you're like, "Well, yeah," but I listened to somebody yesterday and he said eat more meat. So, <laughs> you know, do your research. Uh, just really uh, go online or, or go to the Barnes and Noble, get yourself some tea and just a whole big stack of books, and just start to see what's going on with with the food system. Learn a little bit more about nutrition that, in a way that resonates with you. I think so often we just look for the facts and. Of course, facts are important, and I love that so much of the plant-based stuff now is so science-backed. But on the other hand, you know, you kind of need to gravitate toward the book that has a picture on the cover that you like, one that you just sort of almost are gravitated towards pick, picking up. So get yourself educated first, and then do this your way. I mean, I think that was an old Burger King ad, you <laughs> know, have it your way, but you can't paste 
somebody else's life onto your own. And very often, you know, we have all these wonderful guru-type people who, who do things that we admire and we want to do what they do, but you've got to translate that into the kind of person you are. So, for example, some of the most beautiful people that I know walking on this planet are raw fooders. Oh my gosh, these people seem to never age. They have this glow. They have these beautiful eyes. But I tend to be the kind of person who gets really, really cold in the winter or in air conditioning. And I just really need my hot soup and my hot oatmeal and that kind of thing. And if all I ever read were raw food books, I would feel like such a failure. So what I do is have my warm food that I really need, and then I'll also have um, wonderful fresh juices. I've learned to make this incredible smoothie. It's this Indian chocolate shake, and it's full of warming spices. So you make a smoothie and you think, oh, well, that's going to be a summertime kind of, of breakfast. But I put in cloves, ginger, uh, chili powder, uh, cinnamon, and all, and it just warms me all, all the way down. And I can have that and still go out and be warm. So you need to honor yourself. And if you have some need that maybe wasn't addressed in the article that you read or the show that you listened to, don't worry about that. You know, you're, you're the first first uh, importance in, in your life. And finally, um, third tip would be try it a day at a time. Now, as you know, I'm very fond of a day at a time, and it does seem to work for alcoholics who, who stop drinking and drug addicts who stop drugging. So why not use it for changing the way that we eat. And that way, you don't have to worry about, oh my gosh, what am I going to eat at my sister's wedding next summer? What am I going to eat on my trip to Argentina next fall? None of that matters, just today. Today, you're going to make the best possible choices according to what you know right now, excuse me, and then that's renewable on a daily basis. And the great thing about that is you're always a victor. When you're living up to the highest light, you know, years and years ago, before I was a, a vegan, but I was still a practicing compulsive eater, I worked in an office in downtown Kansas City. And sometimes when I was doing the best I could at the time, and I'd made it through the morning and I hadn't been down to the candy machines, I would take myself to lunch in Macy's Tea Room. And I would have quiche and a glass of white wine. Now, I look at that lunch today, and I think, oh, my gosh, you were having lard, uh, <laughs> white flour, uh, eggs, which I no longer eat, dairy cheese, which I no longer eat, and alcohol. How could you think that was good? But you know what? It, it seemed classy to me. And on the days when I was able to make it through the morning and get myself to Macy's and have that lunch, I could make it through the afternoon without going to the candy machines. So it's you do the best you can do today. That's all you're responsible for. And then you can feel great about yourself. And if you learn more stuff tomorrow, then you can live up to that. Oh, that is beautiful advice. I think it applies to, to really to all of us. I know a lot of people who listen in and people in our culture in general really struggle with their attitudes about food. And I imagine uh, steps of any size sometimes can feel futile and I wonder if you have any advice for someone who is wanting to make changes but feeling completely overwhelmed. Maybe they're in a in a cycle of binge eating or they're really just 
obsessing over their, their weight and the numbers and things like that. How do you find hope in those dark times? Sure. Well, there's a suggestion that I have for binge eaters, and this is actually in, in another little book of mine called Fit From Within. The lo- a lot of people have, have gotten help from. But that is, if you're really in the middle of a binge, eat out. That is totally counterintuitive because we're told, ah, don't eat out. That food is really rich and they give you big portions. You know what? They don't give you binge portions. So you go out and you eat what a restaurant considers to be a full meal. And that usually is a lot of food. And that's going to hold you from that meal to the next. And then you go out again and you have another meal, and you don't get any doggy bags. You just eat what you eat there, and then you go out for your next meal. And it will take two days maybe, maybe three. I've never known it to take more than five days for anybody to break that binging cycle because the binging cycle is is there's there's no sort of timing. And the great thing about eating meals is everybody knows what they are. Anywhere on the face of this earth that you go, hotels will say, you know, the dining room is open for breakfast and for lunch and for dinner. And they may serve different exotic kinds of food, but they still have the concept of breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And once you can get that, that breaks the binge pattern. It's just a little trick I've never heard anywhere else, but it works. That's beautiful. And I went through a time of binge eating and... I could see that really working because I know for a fact I never binged in front of anybody else. You know, it was Mm-mm. always a very solitary thing. Even turning the lights on seemed to change things. And it's, I know what you said about counterintuitive. It feels like the last thing you want to do, but, uh, breaking that, that cycle, I could see that really, really helping. I appreciate that very much. Well, I hope it helps some of your listeners because this is such a, a difficult difficulty for somebody to have because there is a lot of shame around it and and particularly if you're someone who's felt ashamed of your body to begin with and then you're ashamed of what you're eating. I mean, it's just, it's so sad and you don't tend to get the kind of empathy that you get for certain other life situations that are equally painful. You still get people saying, push yourself away from the table, or gosh, you know, I went to, you know, Weight Watchers or something else, and I did great. Good for you. I'm glad you did great. I'm suffering here. Please try to hear me. But most people can't. I think it's because everybody eats, and most people aren't addicted. And those of us who go through periods where we are addicted, it's really just like if somebody was on methamphetamine, you don't say, well, just push yourself away from the meth house. I mean, we get it. That's serious. Well, this is serious too. And that's why it's really important to have people in your life who understand, who who know what this is about, and who sometimes will just sit back and listen and just, just let you talk in, instead of necessarily offering so much advice all the time. I found that when I was dealing with this, particularly when it showed on my body, it didn't always show on my body because I periodically dieted. So sometimes I was obese, sometimes I was overweight, sometimes I was normal weight, and sometimes I was skinny. But I was always a compulsive overeater. The size of the body didn't change that. But when I was overweight, people would always offer me all kinds of advice, even complete strangers. And it was, it was devastating. 
So I think we just need to really hold on to the fact that each of us is is brilliant. We're, we're a piece of, of a star. I mean, the the wonder that we are, we probably won't know as long as we're on this earth. And yet, that's who we are. That's what we're here for. And sometimes people who have more of an understanding of who they are in, in reality, in a, in a spiritual sense, have more difficulty with things like, like food, with things like sex, than, than other people do. It doesn't mean we're less than. Maybe it even means we're a little bit special. So hang on to that. That's so beautiful. I agree. I, I see so much sensitivity and creativity and huge hearts in people who, who do struggle. And it's also a good lesson that you're sharing for people who don't struggle in these ways to be compassionate for other people, you know, to not judge other people's diets or where they are in their journeys. So true. As far as aging goes, you earlier mentioned people on raw foods diets that you just think are so stunning. Well, I think you are the stunning person who's not aging. So would, <laughs> would you share uh, how compassionate living has been affecting your aging process and, and how that might affect other people's? Thank you. So I've been uh, vegan for 32 years, and, and my recovery from compulsive eating enabled me to, to make that choice. So those two things came around the same time. But I really feel that I started doing better with aging more recently because I've gotten very involved in wanting to make a difference on the planet. And there's something about being part of something big. In, in my case, it does happen to be veganism and wanting to save animals and that, but it doesn't matter what it is. I think a really great suggestion for aging well is just dive into life, dive into something that is meaningful to you and something that you're passionate about. And what I've found since being really involved in, in the vegan scene here in New York City in the past 10 years or so is I have all these beautiful young friends who are very, very cool. Now, when I was in my 20s, I wasn't hanging with a lot of super cool people because I was struggling with my food addiction and hating my body and, you know, all that stuff kind of takes time and it takes a toll. And now I have these beautiful, wonderful young friends and I really do think some of that is, is contagious and kind of rubs off. Uh, another tip that I have is just eat foods that grow up out of the ground. It is absolutely remarkable what happens when you start eating food that is as beautiful as you yourself wish to be. So I tell the people that I work with as a vegan lifestyle coach, you want your plate and your shopping cart to look like a Christmas tree, mostly green with splashes of other bright colors. And the other thing, third thing is, you want to really honor yourself because the people who age the best statistically around the world are people in cultures where age is honored, where people actually lie about their age to say that they're older because they get more perks that way. They get a lot of respect in the community. Well, we live in a culture where it's the absolute opposite where people feel that they can make fun of older people or or even you know do mean things to them uh, and and the, their excuses well well they're old well yeah as you will be too you know if you're lucky <laughs> enough and and to really we do have to 
counteract all these cultural influences. So one way that I do that is by having role models who are older than me or about my age and and people, uh, you mentioned some of the raw fooders, like one is called Mimi Kirk. She's amazing. Another is called Annette Larkins. You can find her on YouTube where the local news interviewed her when she was um, 71, I think, and she looked about 45 and looked gorgeous. And then they also interviewed her husband and they said, what's it like to be married to someone who's so stunning? And he said, well, when we go out, people ask if she's my granddaughter. And so... You know, they they say if somebody has what you want, do what they did to get it. So I, I look at these people and I, I learn. <laughs> and then I also think there's something about acknowledging that spiritual part of, of you. Just things like um, body work and energy work and meditation. One of my favorite scientific studies looked at people who had meditated regularly for five years or more and found that they were 12 years younger physiologically than non-meditators. So these were things like joint flexibility, hearing, vision, body mass index, uh, cholesterol, it, it was all 12 years younger for the people who had simply sat quietly 20 minutes twice a day. So that's pretty powerful. Wow. I believe that. It took me years and years to get to the point where I could meditate and it has been life-changing. And I only do, sometimes it's five minutes a day and sometimes it's 15 or, or 30, but it's incredible what, when we find that stillness in our in our busy lives. Do you meditate regularly? Well, you know, I, I hesitate to say regularly because I'm a big believer in rigorous honesty, and <laughs> so I'm not as regular as I wish I were. But it, it is interesting that most of the studies have been done on, on people who are very serious and very consistent with the 20 minutes twice a day. But like you, I find that any touching the stillness works. And I've actually read that the reason that the scientists are like in the 20-minute thing is that it's not 20 minutes that, that's magical. It's touching that still point deep within, and they have figured out that that can take 20 minutes. If it only takes five, then you get the benefit at five. And my own theory, completely not backed up by science, but I happen to believe it, is when you're in that alpha state, when you're in that beautiful brainwave pattern between waking and sleeping, I don't think you age. I think you're kind of out of space and time, and uh, that time you just kind of get for free. Beautiful. I could I could see that. I love that idea. And I actually saw a study with photographs that showed people's faces after meditating routinely, and I don't remember how long they were meditating, but as far as even, there's this peacefulness in, in faces of people who are aging well, I think, meaning emotionally well, physically well. And it's really beautiful to see that there's like this light that shines through them. Oh, it's it's so true. And even in terms of wrinkles and that sort of thing, everybody is wrinkled when they're tense. You can look at a 10-year-old and they're angry or upset and they have the very same lines that someone is going to have just from life when they're 90. And so when you meditate, all that softens. All that relaxes, and you open yourself to this wonderful kind of of energy that I'm not sure we can get any other way. It's very pure and very healing. 
I believe that it's, it's changed my sleep, you know, my concentration. There's so many, so many benefits to it. And I think it's really important in our busy lives. We have such a, such a hectic culture for sure. Uh, looking at your, your life journey, is there anything that stands out as one accomplishment that you're particularly pleased with? Oh, wow. I've been so lucky. I, I really do live a charmed life. <laughs> my my best-selling book is Creating a Charmed Life, and I, I think I've really been blessed to have, have learned how to do that. Okay, accomplishment. You know what? I'm going to tell you a little story. About, gosh, it's been 20 years ago now, I got really, really sick with a very serious flu. I was visiting in, in France, and I, I think it's the only time in my life when I've ever been close to death. And I was lying there one day thinking, I don't know what's going to happen. And I realized what I had to take with me, that if I were to have left the earth at that particular time, I mean, obviously, everything I'd done in terms of writing books and being on TV and all that stuff, it was going to stay here. But what I could bring with me was that I had taken care of the woman who basically raised me when she was old. I had not done it well. I mean, I was in my 20s. I was dealing with my own struggles. I certainly was not Florence Nightingale, but I had tried my best, and I knew that I would take that with me. And I also knew that I would take with me the help that I had given to other compulsive overeaters. And it was very clear to me that day, lying in that bed in France, thinking, okay, that's um, that's my backpack for going to heaven. <laughs> so I guess I'll just say uh, those are a couple of things. Very, very beautiful. You're so inspiring, and I'm so grateful for your voice and for your work. Uh, how can we stay in touch with you? What are your best links? Oh, thank you. Well, the website has everything, and that is main streetvegan.net. I'm from Kansas City and grew up just off Main Street, so I'm definitely a Main Street vegan, and we did get uh, the .net, not the .com. And you can find me as uh, Main Street Vegan on uh, Instagram and on Facebook. And on Twitter, I'm my actual self, Victoria underscore Moran, M-O-R-A-N. And uh, be in touch. Beautiful. Thanks so much for joining me, Victoria. Isn't she a lovely person? Inside and out, you guys have to check out all of her stuff. Let me know what you think. Next, we're going to get into a important topic with our lovely resident expert in sexual relationships, uh, Dr. Megan Fleming. We have a question here. Let me pull it up. From Anne, who wrote this, I have been happily married for 30 years to my high school sweetheart. Our sex life has always been wonderful, but recently my husband has been struggling with erectile dysfunction. He's in his 60s. I hear that's common. He's not keen on taking medication, and I'm not keen on rarely having sex, which seems to be his preference. I'm also having trouble talking to him about all of this for fear of hurting him. He's an incredible guy, and I'm grateful for all we share. Any tips? What an important question, and I think one people will relate to. Here is what Dr. Megan had to say. And I'm so glad that you're asking this question uh, because I think it can benefit so many other women who are also going through a similar experience. You know, when a male partner um, starts having difficulties with arousal or erections, he can't consistently have them. It's not the one-off, maybe he had too much to drink, but uh, there's some 
fair consistency to not knowing that he can count on and having the confidence in his arousal and erections. It really can strike at the heart of a man's sense of identity and masculinity. And it's really not uncommon at all that they avoid um, sex, even sexual touching, because they don't want to send mixed signals in any way indicating that uh, that might lead to sex. So I think an important part of this is just to start the conversation around there's so many ways to give pleasure. Uh, and I think men so often forget they feel so identified with um, the their erections and penetration and intercourse that they forget that they can use their hands and their mouth and so many ways to please you and give you pleasure. And there's so many ways that you can even please him. It's not commonly known, but uh, you know, men are capable of orgasm even without a full erection. Um, and certainly when I'm working with someone who has erectile dysfunction, it's certainly a part of for masturbation exercises, uh, not, you know, sort of helping them recognize they want to have optimal levels of arousal and not get into a, a sort of a lazy habit of bringing themselves to orgasm without a full erection. But that's sort of a side note. So, you know, the, the important part here also is that for so many men, um, when someone has difficulty with arousal, it's blood flow. It could be neurological. It could be endocrine. Uh, again, the blood flow is vascular. So it's a great opportunity to go see the doctor or urologist because so many medical conditions might first present themselves in terms of impacting sexual response. And that could include uh, diabetes, heart disease, hypertension. Um, and it, we sort of classically know that men often avoid going to the doctor. And so this is an opportunity to really get them checked out because it's like, this might be sort of a warning sign of something else medically going on. Um, and it's certainly an opportunity to increase the conversation about the ways you both receive pleasure. One of the questions you had is absolutely, he's coming into his sixties. Is it common? Yeah. We can look at the data from the male, um, the Massachusetts male, uh, aging study and 40% of men over 40 have uh, indicated some level of erectile dysfunction. And that number jumps up to 70% by age 70. Um, now, of course, that doesn't take into account sort of the severity or frequency, but the idea is it's not un not uncommon that as men age, not only do they have erectile dysfunction, but certainly that age is the strongest factor um, associated with erectile dysfunction and it's increasing severity with age. And so... Uh, your husband is not alone. He may not be comfortable talking about this with his friends, but I imagine it absolutely might be impacting his psyche, his self-esteem and his identity. And so focusing on just the ways that you can give each other pleasure um, is, and just the longing for the connection and all the ways that he can arouse you outside of penetration is important. Now, in terms of erectile dysfunction, because he's not comfortable I hear you say with medication, you know, there are a number of treatments available. Some are more effective than others. Um, and like I said, first step is always going to your urologist to, um, look at, you know, sort of safety, efficacy and appropriate diagnosis. Um, because there's sort of, uh, supplements like ginkgo biloba, which can increase blood flow. There's also the uh, vacuum uh, erection devices where it's sort of the vacuum creates the erection and then you put on a constrictive device, sort of a cock ring. And again, if your husband's getting fairly good erections, he might not even need the vacuum piece. You could just work with sort of a constrictive device or cock ring to sort of maintain blood flow. Um, there are also the penile injections like Caverject, which is a prosodil. And if that might feel for some men, uncomfortable or painful. There's also the Muse, which is a dissolvable pellet that's inserted into the urethra. Um, 
And it's also important to rule out that it might not be sort of low testosterone because perhaps uh, testosterone replacement may be another tool. So I guess I want to give you that hope that he's only in his 60s and we don't know if there is uh, what, what aspects are relative to aging um, or blood flow, but that there's an important opportunity, that there are many treatment options available. And also noticing where his mind is at. And this is why sex therapy is so effective in working with erectile dysfunction, because whether or not there's an underlying medical cause, the psychology around um, wanting to give you pleasure, feeling that performance demand or the anticipatory anxiety of not counting on his erection, all those in and of themselves can inhibit someone's sexual response. So I hope I've given you a lot of information um, to realize there are a lot of avenues you probably haven't yet even considered or tried. And, uh, you know, I work with clients into their eighties that have an active sex life. And so it's really thinking about uh, thinking out of the box and focusing on your connection and what gives you both the most pleasure. Here's to having great sex lives into our 80s. That is pretty rad. I loved what Dr. Megan had to say, all of it. I think it's so important. I hope it helps you, Anne. A few things that really struck me were, first of all, as she said, you know, getting checked up is is pretty important, seeing the doctor regularly, especially if there's a problem. So that's to all of us, a reminder there. Uh, But also, it's so interesting because so many different factors can cause or contribute to erectile dysfunction. Like she said, it could be embarrassment or shame. It could be a lack of sleep, which is a huge cause of erectile dysfunction and and low libido in men and women. You know, it could be a poor diet. It could be a lack of exercise. It could be so many different things. So it's really important to figure out what's going on. And I also heard from her, her response that it's so important to find other ways to have pleasure. And that resonates with me because I hear from so many women who have a particular challenge in their sex life, whether it's, you know, they're not having chemistry in the same position they had with another partner with their current one, or, you know, libido differences, or someone have having a certain kind of kink and another person having another one. And whenever you have those sort of discrepancies or challenges, when you work together and seek alternate ways to find pleasure, there's so much potential for play and creativity and new experiences really release those feel-good hormones. That's what we get rushes of when we're falling in love. And there's actual research that shows over time, if we share new experiences with our partner, we can have those those fireworks going on in our minds. So staying in love, having a a sexy, beautiful bedroom life, whether regardless of how often it doesn't, you know, mean that you need to be having sex every night or every week or whatnot, but just finding a a happy rhythm and, and sharing it together. And I'm so grateful for your question. Please guys keep those questions coming. You can send them to me directly through my website or social media to learn more about Dr. Megan. Make sure you hit up her website, greatlifegreatsex.com. She's got awesome stuff there. You can also follow her on Twitter at Megan Fleming PhD. For a whole lot more on sexual empowerment, including harmful myths debunked, what we do and don't learn in sex ed, my own personal journey, a whole lot about a very magnificent orgasm I had, and a whole lot more, check out my new book. It's called Embraceable, Empowering Facts and True Stories About Women's Sexuality. You can find it on Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com. If you read it and have fun with it, get anything from it, I'd love to hear what you have 
have to say in a simple review. For more Girl Boner fun, subscribe on iTunes so you will never miss a beat. You can also hang out with me and the whole Girl Boner gang online. Find links, show extras, and more at augustmclaughlin.com, M-C-L-A-U-G-H-L-I-N.com. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful girl boner embracing week.